0: Well, welcome, everybody. It's uh, great to see you and great to have you here as a part of the class. I would encourage you, um, Joel sent you an attachment last week, and it was included this week, that little uh, little uh, two-page two uh, piece, Legalism versus Grace. I'm going to get to that in just a little bit. So if you have that close by, that would really be great. Uh, so again, I hope you all know what I mean. Joel sent that out last week. He sent it with the announcements for the class this week. It's a little paper called Legalism versus Grace. Uh, in just a little bit, I want to get to that. It's one of the it's one of the very important reminders about uh, this material. So, um, with all, with that said, again, having that little paper close by or on your computer, wherever you have things like that, if you printed it out. I want to go to what we've been studying, the Book of Ephesians, and chapter two is where we are, and um, we did it did the entire section, the entire paragraph last week. But I want to draw your attention again to the end of verse seven and verse eight, as Paul is describing for us the new position in Christ, the positional truth in Christ that characterizes the believer. The contrast is between the old, verses 1 through 3, when we were dead in our sins, the verses 4 and following, where God makes us alive together with Christ. And he then writes at the end, so that in the coming ages, which refers to the return of Christ, establishment of the kingdom, etc., he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And as I paraphrased that last week, we are the trophies of God's grace. He's going to hold us up as a trophy in the coming age to come. And then, verse 8, he gives the reason. Why are we trophies of God's grace? For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this, that grace through faith dynamic, is not your own doing. It's a gift, not a result of work so that no one could boast. So, if there is one word that Paul uses consistently, and here is the apex of his writings on this, to one word to to describe God's salvation plan, it's grace. We do not earn it. We do not merit it. We do not deserve it. But God offers it to us. Why? Because we cannot earn it on our own. There is nothing we can do that would cause God to say, okay, you've done enough, now you're in. And this is the important point about salvation that is sometimes missed, is not emphasized enough, and at least in my opinion in studying church history has been distorted in the history of the church by major segments of Christianity where they will argue you are, salvation, justification is by grace, plus works. If you read a verse like this, verse 8 9, I don't know how you can conclude that. Not result of works, verse 9, so that no one can boast. I, to me, that can't be any clearer. It is, it works, our, what we do has nothing to do with salvation. It's a gift. And it is only explained by God's grace, so, and that we studied that last week, but I wanted to, to reemphasize that and use that as a, a kind of a, a, a tipping point for us to focus on this little paper. And so if you have that on your computer, or on your phone, or if you printed it out or whatever, I, I would like to look at this now and read through this and comment on each one of these items. Jesus Christ had his harshest words in his public ministry of a little over three years for the Pharisees, and we've studied a couple of the Gospels in, in, in the history of this Bible study, so you are familiar with that to, to a degree, and the reason, I think, is because the Pharisees, who were, who were masters of the Bible, they knew the Old Testament better than anyone else. But what they had tragically done is they had turned the moral law of God into a legalistic set of standards. And as you know from studying the Gospels, Jesus continued to challenge that because he intentionally did a lot of his miracles on the Sabbath and therefore challenging that perverted and misunderstanding of a legalistic approach to even something like the Sabbath. So What I'd like to do is is talk about legalism and talk about grace and compare the two. There is a book that I would highly recommend. It's by a man named Philip Yancey, and I quote him at the end of the slide here. You'll see it um, in in a minute. But the, the, the title of his book is Whatever Happened to Grace? And another book he wrote, and it's like volume one and volume two is what is so amazing about grace, both. What is so amazing about grace? And then his second book, Whatever Happened to Grace. So let's take a look at what I've written here. Let's take a look at this. And and I want you to have the freedom to talk about it, to ask me questions. But there are a series of, of key propositions, key statements. I've underlined each one. I believe it's underlined in the paper that you have too. Let's begin with number one. Legalism is following an external code of behavior as a way to please God, to make him love me more. And so just think about the words there. It's an external code of behavior. Now, an external code of behavior is not necessarily evil or wrong. After all, the moral law of God in the Old Testament is that. You and I set, uh, when we're raising our children, we have a, a code of behavior for them that's acceptable and that's unacceptable. But notice the language as a way to please God, to make him love me more. That is legalism because if God is the subject the Bible says in John three sixteen, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, etc. There's nothing we can do that's going to cause God to love us more or less than he does right now. Our actions, our behavior, our following his moral law has nothing to do with him loving us. And you see, that, that is a lie that a lot of people buy. Well, if I do this and this and this, God will love me more. He'll care for me more. Or, boy, if I disobey him and I don't do this and I fall into this, God's not going to love me anymore. That is a foreign concept to the Bible. That is not in the Bible. And so what, 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 what we're trying to say here is that when you, when you look at what the Pharisees did, as they prostituted the moral law of God, they were sending the message to the Israelites: "You better do all sixteen and thir- six hundred and thirteen of these standards, and you better keep them perfectly, or God isn't going to love you anymore." That is that is unbiblical. It's an affront to God, and it is totally opposite His grace. Philip Nancy writes there. That the Pharisees, the Pharisees knew the law by heart without knowing the heart of that. They knew it by heart. They could rattle off all of the 613 standards, but they didn't know its heart. Now, what is its heart? God's law is an act of God's grace. God's law to the to ancient Israel. So as to enable them to walk with him through the sacrificial system, which atoned for sin, and then enabled them to have a relationship with him. Did they deserve that? Did they earn that? Did they merit that? No. And God says over and over and over again in the prophets, I love you. I will never give you up. But as your, as your Lord, I will discipline you to bring you back, but I will never give you up. That's the language of the prophets. It's a quote from Hosea. So this whole idea of, I'm gonna put it, it's not in the notes, I'm gonna put it another way. This whole idea of perform and God will love me. Do not perform and God's gonna love me less. That is not in the Bible. And that is a legalistic, that is a legalistic approach to our faith. And men, that is all over the place in 21st century Christianity. Number two, legalism is a religion of externals, a religious system of external rules of moralism. Once you fulfill the externals, you can arrive at a strong sense of satisfaction. I've arrived. But as I write there, consider, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus Christ said both of those statements. Spiritual maturity in a life of grace is not how pure you are, but an awareness of your impurity. And that awareness opens the door to grace. When I realize that there's nothing I can do to merit God's favor, Isaiah says to the people of Israel, your righteousness to God is like filthy rags. So God has to change you, because there's nothing you can do to earn his favor, earn his merit. So a life of grace, spiritual maturity, is an awareness, Lord, I can do nothing to merit your favor. All you're asking of me is to pick up the gift of salvation, and when we have an awareness of our sin and our impurity, that opens the door to grace. It is all of grace. What does Paul say again in Ephesians 2 eight? For by grace, through faith, you're saved, not of works, lest any man should boast. That is crystal clear. There's no ambiguity there. An awareness of our sin. What's verse 1 and 2, 3 Ephesians 2 say? We're dead in our sins. We followed that triad of evil. The world the flesh, and the devil. But only God could change that. And how did he change it? In his grace and love for us, he sent Jesus. For by grace, through faith, you're saved. So keeping all that on the forefront opens the door to grace in our lives. Number three, legalism often stiffens our lives to embrace extremism. The life of legalism modeled by the Pharisees who went to the extremes of adding to and refining the 613 regulations of Judaism. Grace avoids that extremism. That's why Jesus was so hard on them. That's why Jesus intentionally said, I am healing a man on the Sabbath because I am the Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was given for the good of human beings. It wasn't to merit the favor of God. And the extreme is, the extreme of legalism is turning standards into benchmarks of performance so that God will love you. That is foreign to the Bible. But that extremism is is rampant in some parts of Christianity today, even in the 21st century, where we're saying to our young people, "Don't don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, and then God will love you. Don't do this and God will will show favor on you. Now, it isn't that we don't set standards, but to set it in such a way that everyone understands this isn't meriting God's favor. I am to love the Lord my God. My walk with him is a walk of loving obedience because of his grace, not an obedience to earn his favor not an obedience that says, if I perform, then he'll accept me. And I hope you're following. There's a, that's all of the difference in the world. Fourthly, legalism embraces a trend toward trivialities. We obsess over the most important trivialities of life, but avoid things that are the most important to God, justice, mercy, faithfulness, grace keeps the balance in our lives this is what jesus would say to the pharisees you guys you guys will tithe the 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 the, the herbs that you receive as gifts but you will not take care of your elderly parents because you say oh, i i give all my money to the temple i don't have anything left to take care of my parents and jesus looks them in the eyes and says that is not what the law of god teaches the fifth commandment says you are to honor your parents. And if you say you are saying that you give to earn the favor of God, you, the trivialities, and in our in our culture today, we focus on triviality. We can, I should say we can focus on triviality at the expense of what is really important to the Lord. And uh, I'm not going to use examples unless you press me. But I think you can, if you think about it for just a few minutes, you get the point. We are so focused sometimes on trivial things that are not that important to God. And in Chuck Swindoll's fantastic book, The Grace Awakening, he talks about example after example after example of Christians focusing on trivial things that divide and become divisive and hurt the church, and in, at the end, they really don't matter, and avoiding the, the, the the compassion of God that is so central to the New Testament. Number five, legalism actually fosters hypocrisy because it defines a set of acceptable behaviors that may actually cloak what is going on inside. Uh, There are only two alternatives to hypocrisy, perfection or honesty. Hypocrisy, hypocrisy can ask, we mask our need for God's grace. When it's exposed, it's seen for what it is—a ruse to avoid grace. That actually—I should, I should put that in quotes because that's not my—that's uh, not my sentence. That's actually somebody else's sentence. But the other part is, think about what Jesus says. I'm, I'm using again so much of what he said to the Pharisees. He says to the Pharisees, "Woe to you, Pharisees!" And he will say to the people, "You." You listen to the Pharisees when they teach you the law, but don't do what they do. They're hypocrites. And I forget, I think it's Matthew 22, I think. It's very close to that chapter. But there are six times where Jesus says, woe to you Pharisees, hypocrites. And this is what he's zeroing in on. You say one thing, you teach one thing, but you don't live it. You say one thing to the people, but you don't consistently do what you're saying they should do. That's hypocrisy. And as, as we state there, when you're dealing with the hypocrisy, there are only two, two alternatives when it comes to either, either achieve perfection, which is impossible, or be brutally honest. I can't do all of this. And when you read the Apostle Paul in his letters, he is he is super abundantly filled with an understanding of God's grace, and he says, over and over again, I am constrained by the grace of God. The grace of God motivates me. The grace of God is sufficient for me. The grace of God energizes me. This is a man who lived, not by a set of rigid standards, but by grace, And that's why he talks so much about the freedom we have in Christ, which I want to talk about in just a minute. Number six, legalism often fosters pride and competition. The Pharisees were proud of how meticulous they were in keeping the law, and they tried to outdo one another in their meticulousness. Jesus, who is the incarnation of grace, refused to rank sins as significant or insignificant. They asked him, master, rabbi, what's the greatest sin? Or they would ask him, master, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus always stayed away from ranking things like this. Rather, he raised the listener's sights to a perfect God before whom all of us are sinners in the need of grace. Repentance is the doorway to grace. Understanding who we are, understanding our need for the Savior, Understanding what God in Christ has done for us, they're all the doorways to grace. And then finally, these last two, legalism fails and the one thing it is supposed to do encourage obedience. A system of strict laws encourages disobedience to those laws. The trap of legalism is it produces inestimable feelings of failure and guilt And that is absolutely true. Only grace liberates liberates us from that. And the result then is not a life of rigid legalistic obedience, but a life of loving obedience. Because there's nothing I can do to Jesus has paid it all. Jesus has done it all. And I accept that gift of grace by putting my faith. That is the only thing God requires, putting your faith in Jesus. And then the depths of that cycle of defeat and guilt and feelings of inadequacy is gone. They're all gone because you understand God's grace. And understanding God's grace means my only response to this is to love him. All he's done for me is to love him. All he's done for me, and as the sanctifying process, which is a process of grace, begins, more and more we develop the passion to love the Lord because of everything he's done for us. And our obedience is motivated not by fear, that we haven't done enough, fear that we haven't performed enough, it is substituted by a gracious embrace of God's love, and then I love him back. And it's a loving obedience. We learn that. It's a process where we learn what that means, and we more and more are focused on, I love you, Lord, for what you've done for me. Help me to walk in obedience with you. Because you love me, I now love You. God first loved us, we respond in love, First John says. Finally then, legalism can often encourage its adherents to miss the most important goal of all, knowing God. Paul, the apostle of grace, which he's sometimes called, wrote this in Romans 14, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The ph- Pharisees followed the rules, but did not know God. Jesus says that in Matthew chapter 7. God does not expect us to perform according to his set of rules. He knows we cannot be perfect. So he sent Jesus. And legalism promotes a low view of God. That's a great statement. Grace embraces the majesty, power, and mercy of God. Because the more we realize the nature of our sin and how that separates us from God, and how Jesus Christ made that bridge between us and God, and we cross that bridge by faith, we now embrace his majesty, his power, and his mercy. In page 210 of of Yancey's book, What's So Amazing About Grace, I quote it here. Yancey wrote, Jesus proclaimed unmistakably that God's law is so perfect and absolute that no one could achieve righteousness. Yet, God's grace is so great that we do not have to. By striving to prove how much they deserve God's love, legalists miss the whole point of the gospel, that it's a gift from God to people who don't deserve it. The solution to sin is not to impose an even stricter code of behavior, it's to know God. That's a great paragraph. So, you know, in, in so many ways, if you look at that second sentence, by striving to prove how much they deserve God's love, they miss the point of the gospel. We don't deserve God's love. See, that's performance-based legalism. Okay, God, I've done all this and all this and all this. Now you're going to love me more, right? God's saying, no, 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 you're missing the whole point. It's grace. You cannot merit my favor. And when we embrace the idea and concept and heart of God, which is grace, then our response to Him. Oh, I want to know more about You, Lord. I want to walk with You. I want to. I want to understand more and more of Your heart. What what breaks Your heart? What encourages Your heart? What 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 motivates You, God? It's grace. Therefore, I want to be a person of grace. So. I hope this was helpful. I this, this is very valuable to me personally in my own life. One of my great goals in my life is to be a person of grace and to champion the grace of God, that we have had enough of legalism, we have enough of this performance-based Christianity, and it sows false guilt, uh, and a sense of inadequacy, and shame in in people's lives. Um, are there any questions about that
1: uh, material on, on grace that I went through with you? <clears throat> Jim, I had some uh, large questions dealing with the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, the, the Old Testament was perfect in God's plan, but it was made imperfect by the grafting of the Pharisees and and Sadducees to what God had provided? Uh, And can you answer that? I mean, is that accurate? Kind of an accurate assessment of that? Or would you want to add something to it? Uh,
0: I'm not, honestly, I'm not quite sure I understand what you're asking.
1: Okay, the
2: Old Testament... Um,
1: Oh okay. The Old Testament <clears throat> is the inspired word of God and it reflects God's intent in relationship to humanity. Is is that okay up to that point?
0: Uh okay. It's part of God's revelation, yes.
1: Yeah. And what contaminated that was the was the uh, Pharisees and Sadducees adding to what God had provided that was, that was perfect? Well,
0: uh, yes, uh, in one sense. In Romans chapter 7, verse 12, Paul writes that the law is perfect, good, and righteous. And he's using that, of course, uh, in that chapter to talk about his own life, because chapter 7 is a very autobiographical chapter of Paul. But what the point of that is that the problem with the law wasn't the law itself. The problem was sin of humanity and the sin of Israel, really. But the problem wasn't the law. So it gets back to a fundamental question that um, we have answered in this class before, but I'll pose it again. Why did God give the law? And, you know, th- this is something that is is in uh, the book of Exodus chapter 20 and following, but it's also in Galatians chapters 3 and 4, a, a quite wonderful passage of Scripture. And Paul makes clear that God gave the law as a—and this is the language he uses—as a nanny, I'm paraphrasing it, but as a, a guardian, as a protector— until the Messiah came. And the law was to show, it's part of God's revelation, what the moral character of God is like, but also to enable an Israelite and anyone who put their faith in God, because many non-Israelites came into the kingdom. One thinks of Rahab in Jericho, one thinks of Ruth in, uh, from Moab, who, 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 who married Boaz, and you could just make a long list. So anyone I put their faith in God. The law was to enable them to walk with him. It's how God dealt with their sin. He atoned for their sin through the sacrifices. It enabled them then to walk in faith with him. Salvation has always been by faith. The law enabled the Israelite to walk with God. Tragically, and it began long before the Pharisees, tragically, it began to lean toward An extremism, which was what we are referring to in this class as legalism. Mm -hmm. And by the time of the Pharisees showed up in the intertestamental period, between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, they had become the masters of it, and they tweaked it and modified it, it, added to it, and enshrined it as a set of legalistic standards to earn God's favor, which is not what the law is supposed to do. So, they prostituted something which was good, perfect, and righteous, Romans 7 12, into a legalistic set of of standards that was impossible for any Israelite to follow, and they didn't follow it. That's why Jesus called them master hypocrites. You say one thing, but you don't live it. And so, when Christ comes on the scene, he's challenging that whole mindset of Judaism by the first century, which said that. God is only interested in you living out these legalistic standards, and if you don't live out these legalistic standards, he's going to zap you. I'm embellishing that a little bit, but in effect, that's what they said. And Jesus says, you're missing the whole point. You are missing the whole point of the law. And so he's hardest on those guys that say that. And so the difference between the Old and New Testament can be defined in one word, Jesus. That's the difference. And that's the whole argument of the book of Hebrews. In the Old Testament, you went through the sacrificial rites and all of that to atone for sin. That's how you atone for sin. I should say that's how God atoned for sin. In the New Testament, Jesus atoned for sin, but the language of the book of Hebrews, once for all. So, you know, I don't have to go up to Jerusalem and offer sacrifices. We don't have to follow the feast because Jesus fulfilled all that. So, the difference between the Old Covenant and New Covenant is one word, Jesus.
1: Or or you could use the word grace in there, too. Um,
0: He is is the incarnation of grace. Yeah, of grace. Grace. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just to understand that, and then in the application for us in 2021, Mm -hmm. that was a whole... Point of those those key propositions we just went through and read through is please get away from any idea that you can perform and merit and earn God's love. That you can earn and merit his favor. If that is how you think, you are, in the words of the Apostle Paul, an enemy of grace. So instead, it's understanding there's nothing I can do to merit God's favor. I I am a sinner. There is nothing I can do that in any way can merit his goodness. Why? Wow. I learned to understand that Jesus came. Because that was the problem. Jesus came to solve my problem. And he took the penalty. He died the substitutionary death. He shed his blood to atone. It's the same word in the Old Testament for my sin, once for all. What did you have to do with that? Um, Nothing. What did you have to do with with atoning for your sin? Nothing. What did you have to do with paying the penalty for your sin? Nothing. So what's the word? It's grace. So how do you appropriate what he did to your life? I do that by faith. And so faith in him and I understand. And that's why Paul says that we just read it in
1: Ephesians 2. It's a gift. (laughs) And and so we if if this gift is complete, and I believe it is, I think we all do believe it is, he will give us the ability, if we seek him, to, to live within that grace and to follow his will for our lives. It's not like something we can't reach. We've, we, in fact, can reach if we live in his strength, not ours, but in his strength, following his will for our individual lives. I mean, I just don't want to make it so far out there that people feel like maybe we can't ever get there. But we can get there because he's enabled us to do that by giving us grace that we talk about here And uh, he says, my grace is sufficient to you. And he says, I change not. And I just think those are bedrock assurances that we can do what he asks us to do. Um,
0: He never asks us to do anything that he does not give us the power to do. Dr.
2: Eckman, I have a couple of questions. Yes, please. Uh, If we could go back to paragraph number one, um, looking at what Philip Yancey wrote there, uh, legalism and its pursuit of false purity is an elaborate scheme of grace avoidance. What, what does he mean by grace avoidance there? Uh, Deliberate avoidance of some sort, or how do you understand that?
0: Well, it may or may not be deliberate, uh, and it, it actually could be deliberate. But in effect, you are avoiding what is the central issue of the gospel, which is by grace through faith you're saved. Um, in a sense, in a sense, if you think of the Pharisees, because they are the epitome of um, of, of legalism in the New Testament did did they have a sense of false purity and, and if you understand what Yancey means by that did they did they fast you know I, that's rhetorical but if, if you want to answer it you can did they fast yes did, did they did they give alms alms which is giving to the poor yes did they pray yes? But when you read the Lord's comments on all that in Matthew chapter six, I believe it is, why did they do that? They did that to show this is how spiritual we are. and they would they would go in and just what Jesus says, they would go into the marketplace in Jerusalem or Capernaum or any of the cities that Jesus lived, and they would they would they would pray in public, and what would happen? everybody said, "Ah, look at Rabbi such and such, he's praying. Oh, isn't he a godly man? What's Jesus say there? Um, You were praying to earn the favor of people. You were praying to make yourself look spiritually good. I'm telling you, your prayers bounced off the ceiling. And so he compares In another passage of scripture, he compares a group of Pharisees who go into the temple in Jerusalem, and they they had these long tubes, they called them trumpets, they would drop their offering in and everybody would hear their coins dinging as it went down. And then, and then a poor woman goes up and she puts two mites in, which is a very tiny coin, almost it's in our currency, it's worth less than a penny. And what does Christ say? That woman, that woman gave more than those men. She gave out of her heart. They gave to be noticed by people. And so in the words of Jesus, which one of those understood the grace of God? The answer is that woman. And you see, John, what, what, what Yancey is getting at is, when you put on the hat of legalism, and you think what you do merits God's favor, you now are avoiding completely coming to terms with what grace really means. And, and so what that means is you're telling people, here's what you, you must do this, you must do this, you must do this, you must do this this to please God. That's not grace that's legalism and it and, and you're avoiding you're avoiding the whole focus and discussion that the Bible is filled with this truth you can't do anything to merit God's favor and if I can't do anything to merit God's favor where is my hope what's the answer to that question in Jesus and what he's done for me And when you come to terms with that, you're beginning to understand grace. And then you begin to understand, so what that means now is I've come to faith in Christ from here on out. I am just as dependent on God's grace for my justification, I am now dependent on the grace of God for my sanctification. Because God is conforming conforming us into the image of his Son, The Lord Jesus. And he's transforming us from the inside out by his Holy Spirit. And you say, oh my, that's the grace of God, because I don't have anything to do with that. And so then we turn that on its head, the legalist head. Now I obey. Now I seek to obey. Now I desire to obey. Now I want to obey in response to God's grace and mercy and love and compassion he's shown to me. And I love him. And so John, to say I can earn God's favor is to avoid God's grace. That's what Phil Yancy's saying there.
2: Okay, uh, in paragraph number five. Yes. There are only two alternatives to hypocrisy, perfection or honesty. Uh, can you explain that i mean nobody can reach perfection
0: that's the point
2: <laughs> that's the point that's the point how because does, and so we're being this, honest in admitting that then is, that's right
0: that's right that's right to 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 admit because it, again John it, it go back to how we've been talking about legalism again think of the Pharisees if they really believed, that they could merit and earn God's favor, as as we quoted earlier, what's the standard to merit God's favor? Perfection. You understand what I'm saying? To earn earn God's favor means I have to be perfect. What does Jesus say? Be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. Okay. If that's the standard, am I going to reach that? By my own strength? No. I mean, you can try, and this is why Jesus said in, Ma- I think it's Matthew 22, woe to you hypocrites. You, you guys are master hypocrites because you're selling a lie to the Jewish people. You're telling them that they can earn my favor. And if that's the, what you're saying, then you guys live the perfect life and show everybody how to do it. And what Jesus is insisting from the Pharisees is that second alternative, honesty. Because this, and again, this is the whole point of the Bible. If we are honest about the human condition, honesty of the human condition means we're sinners. And our sin keeps us from God. That is the penalty of sin, separation from God, spiritual separation and and physical separation um, when we die. Only the grace of God can rescue us from that horrible situation. But you know what? So many people don't want to live up to that. They don't want to own up to that. Oh no, no, I, I'm I'm living a good life. When things when things all shake out, God's gonna say you did enough, come into heaven. And that's the lie you see everywhere in our culture. You see it on television programs, you see it in 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 interviews. Well, I'm a good person, I've done some good. God, God, will, God will let me into heaven. <laughs> no. <laughs> And you, and people that say that, they don't understand the grace of God. and They don't understand that God has solved the human condition's basic problem, which is sin. Does that, John, get closer to helping you see what we're trying to say here?
2: I'm sorry, what?
0: Does that get to. Yes, yes, it does. Your, your Thank your
2: you. Question? I understand the import of that
0: now. Okay, good. Any other questions or comments?
1: I have uh, one um, earlier in um, the discussion, you mentioned a book by Philip C and I found what's so amazing by grace, but whatever happened to grace um, looks like it's a, ba- a book called vanishing grace. And it says, whatever happened to the good news. Am I that, getting
0: that's, that's probably it, Russ. Yeah. That's
1: probably it. Thank that's you. It. There's a new version that says bringing the good news to a deeply divided world. I'm okay. probably going to grab that one. <laughs> Thank yeah. you.
0: Yeah. <laughs> That's why, I don't know if you, any of you guys are familiar with Phil Yancey. I, I've read most of his books. He's, a, he's an incredibly uh, good writer, but it's his—it's the way he says things that are so, it, they, they stick in your mind. Another quote I love from Phil Yancey, he said, God delights in saving rebels. Isn't that a great sentence? Isn't that true? God delights in saving rebels. And when you think about that, I mean, I that's that's what I am. <laughs> and and yet at the same, that's exactly what God has done. And you think of all the great heroes of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. You think of think of Paul. We've studied Paul when we were in Acts and all of that. But you know, in Acts 9, Paul was a rebel. He 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 believed he was doing what was right as a Pharisee and meriting God's favor by killing Christians. God had to stop him. By smashing into his life on the Damascus Road, God delights in saving rebels. Then he turns all of that into a passion for him. And Paul, of course, exemplifies that. And that's why when, when, when Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, that in the coming age, God will hold us up as trophies of his inestimable grace. We, you have to think about what that's saying. I am a trophy of God's grace. I'm not a trophy of my merit. I'm not a trophy of my works. I'm a trophy of God's grace. He did it all. I appropriate what He did by faith. and that's all God requires. It's a gift. And you have to pick up the gift. And that, well, you know all that. We've talked about that before. All right, good. Are there any other questions or comments?
1: want one more, Jim. Um, How does God see us who have received Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior? How does he view us?
0: Well, I mean, the answer to that is Paul's answer in Romans, which is the thesis of the book of Romans. He sees us as righteous. We have been declared righteous. That's justification. So, I mean, that means we're acquitted of sin. We we are, we are have been declared by the judge of the universe righteous. Romans 8, 1, there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, etc. And then that just begins all of the discussion throughout the New Testament of the 33 things that happened to us when we put our faith in Christ. And among those things are, we're now a new creation in Christ, 2 Corinthians five 17. We're in the family of God. We've been adopted. We read about that in Romans and Ephesians 1. We're adopted. And I mean, we just go on and on and on, but the starting point, and that's why I answered the question the way you answered it. That's how Paul answers that question. How does God see us? He sees us as righteous. The righteousness of Christ is our righteousness. It's an alien righteousness, meaning it's not our righteousness. It's the righteousness of Jesus that is applied to our account. And that's, that is, I mean, I've meditated on that for 39 years. The amazing grace of God in making me righteous. Amen. I didn't do that. He did it.
1: That's that's a great encouragement I think to us when we're in a spot in our lives and and we need to look up and and uh, ask for his strength.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. But Thank I you. I often would would say this to my to my students, particularly the young men that I, I mentored a lot of men when I was in uh, higher education. But anyway. One of the the important tasks for you as a believer, a child of God, is every morning wake up and remind yourself to see myself the way God sees me. Not overwhelmed by guilt and shame by sin, but to see myself the way God sees me. How does God see me? I'm righteous in his sight when God looks at Jim Ekman, he sees the righteousness of Jesus, his son. That's justification. That is a liberating, freeing proposition. And as long as you keep that in the forefront of your mind, every morning you wake up, Lord, help me to see myself the way you see me. I'm righteous in your eyes. Amen. And that helps us that helps us to not wallow in the guilt when we fall and make mistakes and do things that we know are displeasing to the Lord. We get it. We talk to the Lord. It's the Lord, forgive me. I shouldn't have done it. We pick ourselves up and keep going. And I mean, it's just to always remember who am I in Christ? Not who am I according to what Joe says or what Bob says or what even my wife said. It's what do you say about me? How do you see me? And that is a constant. It's never going to change. And that's why when when we get to glory, and this is what's in Revelation 4 and 5 and all those other wonderful places in the Bible, but we will be singing the praises of God's grace. Because when we get to heaven, Nobody is going to stand before God and say, hey, you know, I'm here because of all I did. You see, you see this long list of things I did here? This is what made me separate. Is anybody going to say that in heaven? That's not the heaven I read about in the Bible. We are going to be trumpeting the grace of God, which is the only reason we're here. And we applied that grace by faith. I've switched from teaching to preaching, so I'm now going to go back to teaching, all right? Now, oh my goodness, it's almost 20 minutes of already. Now, this is all your fault. You all asked too many questions. No, that's not true. This is a great, I really wanted to do this. I hope it was all right, and I hope this is something that you might refer to occasionally. Don't let yourself slip into a performance-based approach to your walk with God you don't perform. You walk in grace, which enables you, Lord, I love you for what you've done for me. Help me. Help me to be your obedient child. As you depend on the Spirit, as you watch him transform you, that, Woody, that's that word, process. We're in the process of being sanctified. What I'd like to do, um, I apparently lost all my slides when I had, a lot, so I'm not going to take the time to Read, read get all that stuff booted up again. So let me go to Ephesians chapter 2 and read uh I don't know if I can get it up again. Well, I'm I'm just going to forget it. Uh, let's, uh, I'll just get back to uh d- just read this cuz we're almost out of time. Go to Ephesians chapter 2 11 through 22. I want to read all of this. I would have done that anyway if I even had the slides, but This is part two. Part one of Ephesians 1 through 11 is the new position of of the believer, that your position, my position as an individual person. Here's what we used to be, verses 1 through 3, dead in our sins. What are we now? Verses 4 4 through 11. We are, or 4 through 10. We are alive to God, by the grace of God, for by grace through faith you're saved, not of works, let any man should boast. both. Verse 11 through 22 is the corporate position. It's the church, but it's focusing primarily on the Gentile, who, and remember, Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. We've read, when we studied uh, Acts a number, a couple of years ago, we went through the major missionary journeys of Paul and so on. Most of his ministry was to the Gentiles in the Greco-Roman world. So he has a message for the Gentiles. He has a message for the, for the people. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Circumcision would be the covenant Jewish people. Uncircumcision would be the Gentiles. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the, from the, you were alienated, lost my place there, from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. Verse 13.
2: But, so similar to, Uh, Paul contrasts old,
0: three old, four through ten new, seven, twelve, the old, thirteen and following the new. So what was the condition of the Gentile? Look at those words, uncircumcised, separated from Christ alien to the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants. What covenants? Abrahamic covenant, Davidic covenant, new covenant. Having no hope without God in the world. Now, if you just itemize all those, what a desperate condition. But now, in Christ Jesus, you were once far off, have been brought near. What was the What was the price? How did that occur? By the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, and that's the shalom, who has made us both, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens, saints, and members of the household of God. I'm going to stop there because what he describes in the remaining verses is a what I want to begin to talk about, how does God look at the church? What is the church? And so on. But the focus, because we're almost out of time, the focus of these verses is to contrast the Gentiles who were not the covenant people of God, were not the chosen Israelites, what was their condition? It was hopeless. And then when Christ comes, what does Christ do? He breaks down the barrier between Jew and Gentile. And if you look at verse 14, that key word, he himself is our peace. And that, you know, that's translating the Greek word "irene," peace. But it really has that Old Testament meaning of shalom. Shalom, and that's really what Arane means in Greek, too. Everything is right with God, everything is settled with God. We are no longer his enemy. We're no longer hostile to him. We have peace with him. And the result is they're now one. Jew and Gentile are one. Galatians 3:28. In Christ. There's neither Jew, Gentile, male, female, male, slave, or free. All barriers and divisions of humanity, when we put our faith in Christ, are set aside. There's total equality at the cross. And, and then you and I read verse 14 in 2021, and we said, boy, that's really a wonderful verse. When somebody in the first century read that verse, they exploded With glee, because now, now God is making this message of salvation available to everyone. Now, that's one of the that's one of the things about the Old Testament. The the children of Israel were to be the ambassadors of uh, of God. They were to show the message of the one true and loving God who's revealed Himself. They did that sometimes. That's why. Rahab came into the covenant community at Jericho. That's why Ruth came into the covenant community. And you could just go on and on with examples. But for the most part, Israel did not fulfill its missionary role. And so now through Christ and now Paul, who's the apostle to the Gentiles, he's making this fantastic story of salvation and the offering by grace through faith of salvation to all people. And God, through Christ, has broken down all the walls, done away with all the barriers. And it's it's a tremendous passage. And next week, what we're going to do, because we're out of time, next week, what we're going to do is we're going to take this apart in detail. It's probably going to take us the whole hour, and it may even take more than that, going into even the next week, to really understand the importance of this passage of Scripture. All right, so we've read it. Now, next week, we're going to tear it apart. Are you with me? All right. Your thought paper is personalize this sentence and show me by several examples that you are a trophy of God's grace. I expect at least five biblical passages in the essay. All right. Uh, You're all laughing because you know you're not going to do that and I'm not going to hold it to you, but that's all right. But it'd be a fun thing to read. I'm going to pray and let you go here. Lord, we thank you for this marvelous, marvelous thought that is by grace through faith we're saved, not of works lest any man should boast. We are indeed the trophies of God's grace. Our salvation and our position of being declared righteous in the eyes of God, that's how you see us, Lord. It has nothing to do with our merit, nothing to do with our works, nothing to do with us earning that. We didn't perform to acquire this. It is all of your grace. And we appropriate it. We pick up the gift by faith. Lord, thank you how simple you made it. It's not complicated. Even a child can accept the gift. Lord, I just pray that every man listening to my voice here and having read the word of God and thought about this legalism versus grace has made that decision of faith. They're a child of God, and you see them as righteous in your eyes. That's a triumphant thought. Because of nothing I've done, but because of everything Jesus did, I'm righteous. I've been declared by the judge of the universe acquitted of my sin and righteous in your eyes. And thank you for beginning that process of sanctification, that process of conforming us in the image of your Son, giving us your Holy Spirit. Beginning to transform us from the inside out. Lord, that's all of grace. So help us to be champions of your grace, champions of your truth in a world that desperately needs to hear that message of hope. For we are men of hope, men of faith, who seek to represent you well. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. See you guys. Thank you, John. Thanks your... a lot. Thank you. Good job. Have a great week.
2: week.